Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for the inauguration of a new series, The Mondale Dialogues, devoted to the values of decency and justice that Walter Mondale lived. My name is Joan Gable. I'm very honored to be able to greet you all today. So, friends, uh, former Vice President Mondale was a national and global force for human rights, fairness, and the rule of law. He was guided by the pillars of conscience, conviction, and service. He emanated great optimism about the future, which not only defined his life, but his longstanding affinity of the mission of this great university. So we're very fortunate to have held a special place in his universe across his exemplary life of dedication and service to Minnesota and the world as vice president, U.S. Senator, presidential candidate, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, and of course as Minnesota's own Attorney General. And he gave back to the university, his alma mater, in countless and inspiring ways. He was a teacher and a leader. He was a namesake and benefactor to our law school and Humphrey School Fellowship Program. And he was a friend and mentor to students and colleagues alike. And I'm very honored in the brief time that I was able to know him to have the advantage of that relationship. He made all of us better. He expected all of us to be better. And I cannot think of a better way to take a step into his indelible footprints than through a series like this and with an opening speaker like the one we have today. So friends, described by the New York Times as a former prosecutor with made for state fair charms <laughs> and to Vogue magazine as personable, popular, and pragmatic, we all know Amy Klobuchar from her reputation of putting partisanship aside to strengthen our state, our country, and the world. In 2019, an analysis by Vanderbilt University ranked her as the most effective Democratic senator in the 115th Congress. And I can think of no one more effective when it comes to resolving differences and working across the aisle to get things done. As chairwoman of the Senate Rules Committee, Senator Klobuchar has worked to expand voter access and support election administration. Last year, she led the Freedom to Vote Act, and recently, she's been at the center of bipartisan efforts to update the Electoral Count Act to prevent another January 6th. I know her personally as a difference maker in the lives of Minnesotans, and I know many others who were introduced to her during her run for president in 2020 and the integral role she played in the planning and coordination of the inaugural ceremonies for President Biden and Vice President Harris where among her many duties, she provided the welcoming remarks at the ceremony and introduced the newly sworn president for his address. We're very fortunate to have our brilliant friend here today and who I may add was a very dear friend of Vice President Mondale. In fact, one of his first pieces of advice to me was to get to know her. So I also wanna thank and, and note uh, the work of Professor Larry Jacobs in creating and moderating what you're going to hear later today. And so without further ado, it's my honor to introduce the senior senator from the great state of Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar. Well, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. It is so fun to be back in person, uh, as well as to see our Zoom audience, uh, wherever you are. But thank you. Thank you, President Gable. Uh, we're so proud of you. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, we almost match, except you had the wisdom to wear maroon. Um, and I'd also uh, like to uh, recognize the Humphrey School Dean, uh, Nisha Bachwe. Thank you so much, Dean. I so enjoyed meeting you at a recent reception. I introduced the Dean to half the Minnesota congressional delegation. Um, and um, mo mostly because I am a uh, fan of hers, but also the Humphrey Institute. Uh, as many of you may know, uh, this was in fact the site of my wedding reception. Um, and it was one of the first uh, weddings ever here. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't even have flowers, we had balloons. 
I most remember my high school prom date, uh, who was not my husband, uh, gathering the balloons, and he decided he was going to release them in a celebratory moment. And then my mother thought it would be bad for the environment, and she was nearly in tears. Um, and I was there in my wedding just trying to mediate uh, the situation. Uh, which I guess was a sign of things uh, to come. The other thing I most remember, given that this is the Mondale Lecture, and I just talked to Professor Jacobs, look forward to seeing him in a minute here. Uh, I, um, Walter Mondale was at my wedding because I was working for him at the time at the law firm, and my dad, in a very Iron Range way, after his toast, threw down the microphone and broke it. And then Mondale came up next to give a toast, and the microphone wasn't working, so he had to yell. This is all out there in the main thing. Had to yell his toast, and he started out by making a Watergate joke, dating us to all the students, uh, because uh, making fun of Donald Secretti and something about the microphones, you know, um, messing around with microphones. So that was my wedding. Uh, but I... Um, I truly uh, love the university. Uh, my husband got his degree here, uh, as well as my dad, and I am so proud of uh, the school and the football team. Okay, so uh, it is an honor uh, to be the one to kick off the Mondale Dialogues and today's topic, how to strengthen American democracy. I think you know that it could not be more relevant uh, than what we are facing today. I did want to start out by just um, an ode a bit uh, to the subject name of these lectures, Walter Mondale. Uh, he was my mentor from the very beginning of my career in politics uh, when uh, it was my first job uh, out of uh, uh, college, my first job in Washington, D.C., actually. No, I was in college, and it was my first job in Washington, D.C., where I was assigned to do the furniture inventory. And I crawled under every desk after thinking I was going to have a very glamorous role um, and wrote down serial numbers. And I learned then that nothing was missing. Uh, and I also learned, uh, take your job seriously, as I've told many groups of students here, because that was my first official government job in Washington, and this was my second. Um, um, Walter Mondale um, never lost his decency. When you think of everything he went through, he came home and made us proud. And a while back, a few years back, while he was still alive, I visited the Carter Museum. Jimmy Carter just celebrated his 98th birthday. Uh, which is alone, I think, applause-worthy. <laughs> um, and I went to the Carter Museum, and I got in there, and I was like this total Mondale geek, asking all the people that work there, where's the Mondale stuff? Where's Joan's dress? Um, uh, whereas everyone there, uh, honestly, would not have that as their major focus. I found the grits and fritz signs. I found everything I wanted. But as I was walking out, there were these huge words on the wall, and they were the words that Walter Mondale uttered uh, after they had lost the election in 1980. And he looked back in a very clear-eyed way at their term, and he said this, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, we kept the peace. We told the truth, we obeyed the law, we kept the peace. And I wrote those words on a piece of paper. I kept them in my purse for years, and they were a touchstone for me, especially during uh, the Donald Trump uh, presidency, and I would look at those and remember what our job was. Um, so in that spirit of um, being, having a decent uh, elected official like Walter Mondale, uh, I want to talk about the challenges uh, facing our democracy. And because you came here uh, for a dialogue and not a Halloween horror movie, I'm actually going to give you solutions. I will talk about some of the horrors. They do sort of you know, occupy my dreams and nightmares. But for everything I raise, I want to try to give a solution because I think there are solutions, and they're right in front of us, actually. So we start with the Halloween horror, and that's what happened on January 6th. Um, as you know, I was there. I was actually then the ranking member of the Rules Committee, but that day we knew I was going to become in charge, Senator Blunt and myself, because we just had won the Georgia Senate races um, that morning. So that was the mindset, right? You get there, there were some protesters, we walk in the building, um, and it wasn't anything near to the angry mob that had walked down that mall, marched over to the Capitol just a few hours later. And uh, we 
had our speeches. I was in charge of making sure when everyone, who got to speak. And I remember I designated myself to go immediately after Ted Cruz. And uh, my remarks, if you ever look back at them, were incredibly on point. I actually was the only one that used the word coup. I didn't know we were going to have a coup, but I uh, referred to the Republicans who were standing with us, which was the vast majority of them, as the coup fighters. Um, and then I talked about the fact that uh, my friend Senator Blunt, the Republican from <clears throat> Missouri, has in his office a statue um, that is a cleric, yeah, the guy, you can tell he's a religious figure, and Roy has it in his office, and he has done so much research that Capitol has. This guy, the statue is way over 100 years old, 200 years old, but no one knows who the guy is anymore. And when Roy brings people into his office, he tells that story to senators and school kids alike and says, you know what, this is what our democracy is about. This guy was so important at the time that someone created a statue for him. But now no one knows who he is. So what he said and what I said on the morning of January 6th before the insurrection was this. The message of that was it doesn't really matter who we are because for most of us, people aren't going to remember who we are 100 years from now, including the senators. What they're going to remember is what we did because that's what matters in government. That sets the standard and the torch for what's passed on from generation to generation. So we were called out of the chamber. We were taken to a room undisclosed location. I um, was um, Senator Blunt and I because Senator Schumer and Durbin and Senator McConnell and Thune were brought somewhere else by law. Uh, we were the ones in charge in that room. And several times we got up on the area that was elevated in the room um, and announced update. And I remember the first one I gave was that no matter what, no matter what we saw on TV at the time, uh, they were in our chamber rifling through our desks, that we would go back, that we would return and we would finish our jobs. And I remember all everyone was in there. The people that voted with the Electoral Count at college, the people that voted against it were in there. Josh Hawley was there. Everyone was in there. And I also remember we had TVs on around uh, where um, when President Biden, then President-elect Biden, um, spoke uh, that people respectfully listened in the room and everyone clapped. Um, I also remember a guy, a cop, I was the contact with the police, and of course they were getting completely beat up. Over 100 of them were injured. Um, we had suicides coming out of it. Uh, one person died the next day. Another person died as well the next day. Um, and one of the police officers his, whose face was just covered in cuts came up to me and said, someone just put a picture of this up on Facebook, and we only have 10 cops out there. And if the insurrectionists come in this room, because they know what the room is now, we don't have enough people, because they're all fighting them in the, other, in the Capitol. And then I remember I stood up. I had no idea who the senator was that did it. I still don't. But I said, you know who you are. You take that down right now. <laughs> like some scared straight lecture in the middle of the thing. So that's what happened. And we, at 4 in the morning, after everyone had gone, the insurrectionists had been pushed out, and it was just... Vice President Pence and Senator Blunt and myself uh, walking through the broken glass and the spray-painted columns on the route from the Senate to the House that had been a celebratory walk, ceremonial, everyone there, uh, just about, you know, 12, 15 hours before. And there we were in that really, really devastated capital. But we did it, and we got to the House. We did our jobs. There were three pairs of young women with the mahogany boxes containing the last of the electoral uh, votes up to Wyoming, and we said democracy will prevail, and it did. And Vice President Pence announced that President Biden and Vice President Harris had won the election. So that's what I uh, come out of. Um, so I think what I have learned since while we got through that and democracy prevailed um, is that, one, um, the people that uh, perpetrated uh, this insurrection must be held accountable and prosecuted. Uh, two, uh, we have, it didn't really end there with the bayonets and the bear spray. Um, it continued with voter suppression laws all across the country. Uh, over a dozen of them have passed, um, and hundreds more have been introduced in state legislatures across the country. 
Um, and we've also seen continual waves of misinformation, um, some of it foreign produced, some of it domestic, uh, about politics and about our election. So to me that kind of lays out um, some of the problems that we've had. So now let's talk solutions. Uh, the first is right in front of us and very relevant, as I was just telling Larry, the Electoral Count Act. Um, so this old bill was elected, and I mean old, in 1887 uh, after the disputed election between Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Um, and it got passed uh, as kind of a compromise after that. Uh, during our debates about this, Senator Cruz, who I often spar with, uh, noted that he thinks we should go back to that commission and that time, and I said, I don't really like that time because I couldn't even legally vote, so I don't really feel like going back then, 130 years. Um, but that bill then which was really pretty much overlooked. There were some kind of po pokes at it with one objection, you know, need only, as you probably heard, one from the House, one from the Senate. Um, happened a few times, once to make a point um, about the fact that it needed reform during the Nixon uh, presidency, and he actually agreed later that it needed the reform, um, and that was why that point was made. I think it was Muskie, um, and then another point after the Gore election. Um, and But those were single objections that were then voted on and resoundedly defeated. I think one vote for one of them. Then we come upon this, what happened. This was a way different thing. When Blunt and I looked at it before the knowing there was going to be any insurrection, we estimated that the six to seven states, and that was a minimum they were going to do, was going to take over 24 hours. And we couldn't really, it would have been four hours between each one, and so I warned my colleagues about it um, as we made our plan. So it's a pretty crazy system uh, that we can't respect the will of the people. And if someone really wanted to mess around, picture this, you'd only need one person from each chamber. And they could object to all 50 states, even the ones their candidate won, nothing stopping them. And then we would have to go back, and it could take over, I think we counted 250 hours. So, um, so at the root of the plan of what we saw this last election were false claims uh, that the law allowed the vice president to refuse to accept electoral votes that were lawfully cast. Um, and uh, you remember the hang Mike Pence, they only were uh, 40 feet away from him at one point, um, and that was a major focal point, even though anyone that looks at this law doesn't uh, agree that that's the case, but that's what happened. So what did we do in addition, so I've laid out some of the problems here for you with this bill, and also I would add the fake slates of electors that also were proposed in some states. So what the bill does is this, and this is a bill that there's a House version that's similar, more similar than dissimilar uh, to the Senate version that so Lofgren um, and uh, Liz Cheney uh, introduced and passed the House. Um, the bill in the Senate uh, had been worked on uh, for months by a bipartisan group, um, and Senator Blunt and I guided them with ourselves, our staff, um, an earlier version that um, Dick Durbin and Angus King and I introduced is a little more similar to some parts of the House bill. But in any case, we work through uh, this whole thing and have strong, strong support in the Senate. What does it do? Uh, it explicitly clarifies that the vice president uh, doesn't have the authority to accept or reject electoral votes that their role is ceremonial. It raises the thresholds, um, which you've heard about, not from one to one, but to 20% uh, of the uh, Senate would have to actually agree to an objection before the vote would happen. Uh, third, it ensures that partisan state legislatures can't anoint uh, and appoint electors themselves uh, and ignore uh, the will of the voters by requiring these electors be uh, put in place ahead of time. And fourth, it makes reforms to ensure uh, that candidates don't mess around in the court system, but there's, there's still an orderly process of appeal. So that's the bill. Um, we made some changes that I think were really positive. Uh, Roy and I did that we got the buy-in from the group. And then we had the vote, and lo and behold, I knew this was happening, but everyone was shocked. It was 14 to 1. We usually don't get that except for, like, volleyball resolutions. Um, and uh, that, that's the story of the Electoral Count Act. It's now headed to the um, Senate floor. Um, we always knew it would be after the election, um, and, um, and we will go from there. We have to get it done by the end of this year. Um, second problem um, is that we have a number of people running for office in the country that are election deniers. They refuse to still admit uh, that the um, results of the 
2020 election were correct, and some of them uh, have even said they won't respect uh, the results of the elections in their own state. And remember, the Electoral Count Act only gets at the presidential thing, right? I mean, it's good because it shows there's bipartisan support, so in a way it's broader for respecting elections, uh, but at its core, it only covers that. And that's why uh, it is so important, this coming election, I found it interesting that you have, you know, the January 6th committee where you've got over in the House Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger um, very strongly supporting our democracy. I truly don't view this as partisan. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, and you've had a number of Republicans uh, standing up, both as election officials and local election officials for the results in 2020, governors, secretary of states in states from Arizona, uh, to Georgia uh, standing up for the results. Um, so that's a piece of it, but the second piece of it is what's happening right now. Um, uh, the number is that we have, I think it is, where is it? 50%, 50% of people, I wanna get this right, are gonna have someone on the ballot, 50% of Americans uh, will have an election denier on the ballot this fall in one way or another. This is mostly coming from Secretary of State's races. Um, one example, in Pennsylvania, the Republican nominee for governor, uh, Doug Mastriano, was caught on video passing through Capitol Police barriers after they had breached by others in the crowd during the insurrection. Uh, his opponent uh, is running strong and has had a number of Republicans uh, come out for him, um, including former Bush Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. Uh, so there are I want to make this clear, uh, through these elections, there have been a number of Republicans standing up. Adrian Fontes, uh, who uh, has shown that he has the courage to protect our democracy. This is in Arizona. I was the, um, there to help him recently. Uh, when he served as a Maricopa County recorder in 2020, his family had to vacate their house for days because of death threats he got just for doing his job. Uh, he also has had a earned the support of a current Arizona Rep uh, Republican state representative who said he was proud to put country before party because he believed that this man would faithfully execute his job. So the importance of understanding if candidates on the ballot by reading up on them um, are election deniers or not, if they're willing, win or lose, to respect the will of the people is very, very important in this election. Um, and so for me, that solution is just people voting, getting their act together, making this a priority. Uh, next up, election disinformation. Um, and uh, this is another major problem that I know you are all aware about, and that is people reading things online that just aren't true. It's not limited to election. It's uh, limited to, it expands to everything from healthcare uh, where we had so much bad information on vaccines early on uh, that got out there on the internet that it influenced people's decisions, that it actually uh, led people to not get a vaccine um, and then they perished because of the uh, COVID. And we've heard that time and time again of widows going on TV telling stories of how their husband read something on the internet or you know, I still remember going to a cafe in my neighborhood and this uh, guy working there, a young guy, he said his mom, he just can't get her to get the vaccine. This is early on in the pandemic uh, because she truly believes that it's gonna plant a microchip in your arm because she read it on the internet. So we know it is not limited uh, to politics. And so how do you solve uh, this problem? Well, um, I'll kind of go bigger first uh, because I believe this is and core some of the problem and that is and I trust uh, we have not had a vigorous enforcement of competition laws in this country. It has led to concentration of power and a few hands in the tech industry. Um, and um, one example, uh, Facebook and Instagram used to be separate companies. WhatsApp used to be a separate company. Um, and Facebook swallowed up um, many, many, many companies. And as Mark Zuckerberg wrote in an actual email that was discovered during the House investigation of the gatekeeper tech companies, he wrote this, he said, I'd rather buy than compete. 
So one of the problems there is that we'll never know the bells and whistles that Instagram or any other platform, a smaller one, might have developed to bring people onto their platform in terms of privacy, in terms of identification, uh, in terms of misinformation. We'll never know that because they're all bought up. Um, and so I truly believe that uh, the competition issue plays into this um, because we have so much consolidation uh, in the tech industry. We'll never know what bells and whistles they could have developed. And because there is little incentive when you're a monopoly to truly fight uh, disinformation. So how do you create those incentives? Uh, well, um, the first is to make sure that the antitrust agencies have the funding they need. Senator Grassley and I just had a victory. Our bill to change the merger fees um, passed the Senate a while back, but it has passed the House. It'll mean significantly more funding for the Justice Department, antitrust, and the FTC. It just passed the House, and it was quite a, a mini fight there, but 30 Republicans um, crossed over, voted for the bill. It's always been bipartisan. Um, the second way you get at this is liability. Uh, we have a legal provision called Section 230 that protects social media companies from liability for the spread of dangerous content on their platforms. We once did vote for one exception uh, for sex trafficking. So we actually did an exemption on that. Um, but the rest of it is just they are, they are immune from any kind of responsibility. And I, I don't view them as some... Um, just marketplace of ideas that's free. I think we all know that. They are now the biggest companies in the world, the, many of them the biggest companies the world has ever known. Um, and so this idea that they would have uh, straight out liability protection, um, and this isn't necessarily about the posts that go on it. I want you to think of it this way. If you're in a theater and someone yells fire, that's not protected speech, right? That person's going to get in trouble if someone's hurt while everyone's running out. Theater, if they have all the protections in place, probably not. But what if the theater amplified it and went to all their multiplexes and had go fire, fire, fire? They'd probably be liable for that. That's what I'm talking about. It's the algorithms. It's how they're making money off of all of you right now. And it's led to um, more responsibility when it comes to misinformation. A uh, third idea here is disclaimers and disclosure. So those ads that go up, they don't really have strict uh, requirements. Some of the platforms have done them themselves, but a lot of them aren't. To even show who's paying for an ad, even the minimal, which is so minimal after Citizens United to begin with, about knowing where the money comes from, they don't have to put anything on. And so Senator McCain and I, who I miss very much, uh, put forward a bill that Senator Graham uh, for the last two Congresses has co-sponsored with me with Senator Mark Warner. And that would require the companies uh, to put disclosures and disclaimers, which seems like a no-brainer, on political ads. Uh, because what we found out in the 2016 election, as you all know, is that a bunch of them were actually purchased in rubles. Oh, big problem. Uh, from Russia. And they, the, what the effect of this in a campaign is extraordinary. In the 2016 election, there were ads out, paid or unpaid, that actually said, targeted at the black community in Midwestern states, that said, vote for Hillary. But you don't have to go in in person and vote. You can text your vote at like 86135, vote here. And that happened. And no one was stopping it. So, of course, it's enforcement, uh, but it's also liability. Okay, next answer. Taking on the voter suppression. As I mentioned, 18 states have passed 34 restrictive voting laws. Um, and I'll give you one example. Uh, Reverend Warnock, uh, you know, disclaimer, good friend of mine, and John Ossoff uh, as well, good friend. Uh, they won uh, in that last election in part uh, because 70,000 people registered to vote during the runoff. We don't have these in Minnesota. They have in Georgia. If you don't get 50%, there's this runoff. And it was months uh, in the past. The legislature shortened it, um, and then basically what happened, because they shortened it, you can no longer register to vote during the runoff, and that's their actual election. Uh, they limited, as you've heard about, the food and water when they have lines for hours. Uh, there was a change made about um, having to put your birthday on the outside of the ballot. 
Um, and there were just a number of things done uh, to make it harder, not easier for you to vote, which has been Minnesota's mantra from the beginning. No matter if we had Republican governors or Democratic governors here, we have had a very good track record of strong election laws uh, that allow people to vote. Um, the other piece of what's going on is threats against election officials. So these are all these problems I'm getting to with voter suppression and the like. Uh, Republican City Election Commissioner from Philadelphia, Al Schmidt, testified at a hearing I had uh, that he actually got a message saying, tell the truth or your three kids will be fatally shot. Uh, you all heard the sad story of Lady Ruby from Georgia and her daughter Shay, who were both so proud to be election officials for years. That was in the January 6th hearing. And they then got targeted with false claims that they had somehow doctored the election results. And uh, Shay told the story of how she didn't even want to go out of her house and gained all this weight. And the mom, Lady Ruby, I thought in the most touching thing, said how proud she was her whole life. She had a T-shirt that said Lady Ruby because uh, she was the election volunteer that everyone loved in her county. And now she can't even wear the T-shirt. So uh, what we put forward last year was the Freedom to Vote Act. I led that bill, as uh, the president mentioned. And it was months of negotiation from another bill called For the People. And what it did was simply put in minimum federal standards for elections, uh, very similar to what Minnesota has, not in every way, but similar, you know, to early voting registration. We have um, uh, generously more than some states, but it put in a few weeks of early voting. Um, Same-day registration, the number one demarcation of when you're going to have high, high, high voter turnout is same-day registration. Um, making sure you can have mail-in balloting without an excuse. Um, and then making sure voters have access to drop boxes, which they just took away, I believe it was in Wisconsin. So um, the solutions are out there, and that um, no, was in Arizona, that's where I was. Wisconsin, Governor Evers actually vetoed something when it came to um, drop boxes. So those are solutions. Uh, we came very close in the Senate. We had every Democratic um, senator on the bill, including Senator Manchin. Um, but the problem was the filibuster, but I'm going to save that for maybe Larry's questions. Um, so how I end is with this. Um, after that night of January 6th, uh, just to give you a memory of uh, the goodness of our country was the inauguration. A lot of people wanted us to take it indoors. The Star Tribune editorial board actually wrote a piece on it, uh, directed at me about that they should keep it in a bunker. No, okay, they didn't say that, but maybe they did. Um, uh, because the oath was short, um, I actually respect them very much, but I completely disagreed with this idea uh, because as long as the security people, which was a whole new group of security people, was Homeland Security, everything, as long as they were felt that it was safe to go forward, we felt it was so important for the country to have that, um, have that uh, ceremony uh, where it always was. Uh, it was Abraham Lincoln who once got grief for doing work on the Capitol during his inauguration. There was all kinds of ropes and bolts and things around the Capitol. And he go, why are you spending money on this during the Civil War? And he said, if they see the building going on, it means the Republic shall go on. That's how Pre President Biden felt about it. That's how Roy and I felt about it. And so on that beautiful, glorious uh, blue sky day, uh, which when I looked up at the sky, you'd think I would be celebrating the sky, but I kept thinking of things my colleagues had said to me, all their concerns, and I thought, well, there's no drone looking down at me right now, Senator Blank. Um, and uh, there was these little, uh, little bit of snowflakes coming down, and um, it was just this gorgeous day with Amanda Gorman in her beautiful, bright gold coat. Um, and as I said that day, our democracy goes on. We square shoulders, uh, we brush ourselves off, and every four years, regardless of the results, we go forward as one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. That's what we remembered that day. And it all was just, to me, in technicolor, except for one problem, and that was that Lady Gaga and I wore the same dress. And I, I had to go home and change. No, not really. Um, the... Uh, uh, the truth was is that it was so important for the leaders of both parties to be on that platform, that President Bush was there, 
that Dan Quayle was there, that Mitch McConnell was there, to say to the country, this is how our democracy works. We believe in the peaceful transition of power. That is the fundamental part of the American democracy that has made us a country envied around the world and strengthened our economy and strengthened our people. Um, so that's what's at stake here right now as we talk about our democracy. And I just want to thank this great university for allowing me to say a few words. And in the spirit of Walter Mondale, in the spirit of that decency and civility, willing always as he was to listen to the other side and do the right thing, I look forward to my discussion with Larry. Thank you. Thank you very much. I last saw him in Washington when he brought the uh, fellows in, so thank you for that. It was great. Amy Klobuchar is a graduate of the Policy Fellows Program. Yes, which I is, am. I forgot that. And yes. <laughs> which is a uh, program started by Walter Mondale 33 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and the senator is so kind to meet and host us in the Capitol uh, every year that we're there. We appreciate it. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's very active in Washington on election issues, I said, you know, give me the sense of who, who are the top people in, in Congress working on election issues? And he was paused, and there was kind of an awkward silence after a while. He goes, Amy Klobuchar. I said, well, I know that. <laughs> who else? He's like, there is no second place. <laughs> it's Amy Klobuchar, and I just want to acknowledge the enormous amount of work that you've done. And uh, we run a program here at the Humphrey School uh, training election officials. Right. You actually are, like, rated as the best on this. It's very cool. And yeah. uh, a lot of folks are following online who are election officials and mm -hmm. appreciate the many bills that you've done. Um, one of the things that is really striking about America is the Constitution, when it was written in 1787, doesn't mention voting rights for the obvious reasons related to race and gender and, and, and class. Um, and it's really 1965 when voting starts to be addressed in Congress. And it's been addressed a bit afterwards, but not wholesomely. Um, and you're starting to fill that gap. It's really, if your bills pass, it'll be transformative on mm -hmm. the issue of voting. Um, my question is the Electoral Count Act, 14 to 1 vote, Mitch McConnell comes out and supports it with like over Kind of swinging, actually. Yeah, in yeah, a good way. Over, yeah. the, over the top language for yeah. Mitch McConnell. It's like, yeah. I'm really behind this. Mm -hmm. But then we move to the other agenda on voting and there's not support other than one or two Senate Republicans. Is there a way around that? Is this going to always be just a battle on voting? It's going to be a partisan issue? Well, I, it, you, first of all, number one, it used to be completely bipartisan, and that was, of course, the Voting Rights Act, um, where it was at, at one point when Bush was president, when it got reauthorized, I think nearly every single member of Congress voted for it. Though from the beginning, it was bipartisan. Then if you remember the Shelby case, the Supreme Court case, which um, actually decimated parts of the Voting Rights Act, you know, clearly opening the door for Congress to update it is what they were pretty much asking for. Um, and that's when it, it just, everything went bad um, in terms of getting Republican support. I remember Sensenbrenner, who's no longer a congressman over in Wisconsin, of course it's our neighboring state, uh, he actually hung in there on the Voting Rights Act changes. And that's what it's called the John Lewis Bill now, right? So that would most likely go hand in hand with our Freedom to Vote Act. It, that corrects some other problems with the Voting Rights Act. But um, it, the short answer to your question is right now, I'd say it's sadly these bills are not supported bipartisan. However, two things, big things that happened this year. The first, we talked about the Electoral Count Act showing some interest in uh, proceeding federally. But secondly, uh, the January 6th Commission and Liz Cheney's um, larger-than-life role um, in being willing to take on her party and buck them when it comes to the Trump view um, of democracy. And so where that leads, I don't know. The third way, of course, getting around it, depending on the outcome of the election, um, is to do, which has happened over 160 times, including for things like space accident compensation, uh, where you do exemptions from the filibuster for certain things, including, by the way, all tax and spending now. 
uh, is at 51 votes. That's that thing we call reconciliation. That's how the Inflation Reduction Act passed with the work on climate change and pharmaceutical prices. So there would be an obvious argument to make an exemption from voting rights. We were not able to get two of our Democratic senators to support that, but depending on the outcome of the election, that is another route that we could go uh, to pass uh, voting rights. That is not the bipartisan route that you're discussing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really striking, um, the, the degree of acrimony, and it goes back forever. I mean, this fight between one side and the other about how these election rules advantage one side, at least in the short term. And, you know, many Republicans view some of the bills you've put forward as a way to help Democrats win elections because it's going to expand uh, the roles, it's going to make registration easier, it's going to make early voting easier. Mm -hmm. How do you respond that your, your, your proposals are really just a partisan um, helping hand? Yeah, I just, I, when you look at just the things in that bill and what's happened in states that have done it, I mean, you know Minnesota has elected all these, all of these rules were in place. Maybe there's been some changes made to make it easier to do mail-in ballots out of the pandemic, but pretty much we had that. You had Governor Pawlenty, uh, you had Governor Dayton and Walls, uh, you had Governor Jesse Ventura. I always tell my friends in independent states, if you don't believe me that I understand purple voters, I have three words for you, Governor Jesse Ventura. Um, and so um, we had that, but there's much more examples than that. Um, New Hampshire's a state that is clearly a purple state that goes back and forth very close elections. They have a Republican governor right now, Democratic senators. They have fairly good voting laws. You've got um, some of the same-day registration laws. Iowa has pretty expansive uh, voting laws, and that state, they've made some unfortunate changes lately, but that state um, is more of a red state. Uh, Utah, where Mitt Romney is uh, the senator from, uh, they have like 90% mail-in balloting. That was actually one of the funnier parts about the assault on mail-in balloting, not by Mitt, who greatly defended it, um, but by Trump, because he was fine with the results in Utah. <laughs> Um, I think it might be nearly 100%. It's one of the top mail-in balloting states in the country. Oregon uh, has really close, uh, very um, expansive voting laws in a different way. And that governor's race right now there is nearly tied, and you had um, a Republican senator not that long ago. So I just don't buy this. I think what you have in states that have a high voter turnout is much more buy-in to the franchise. People feel like they're not being shut out of the franchise, and that is really important for democracy in our country. You were just talking about the tremendous variety when it comes to what states are doing on voting. Um, and it raises the question that a number of people have posed about the constitutionality of uh, some of the proposals you put forward with regards to voting. Um, obviously, the Constitution really only talks in, in one spot about the times, place, manners um, of elections being uh, decided by the states uh, and the legislatures in them. Um, is, it, is this constitutional? I mean, what, what's the argument for that? Uh, yes, and uh, that's been one of the most fun things of working with both uh, Democratic election lawyers and the most, you know, Republican election lawyers as well that do all. We've had them at our hearing, which Susan Collins felt was one of the best hearings she'd ever seen on the Hill. We had... Like, ma like big Republican election lawyers and Democratic lawyers who testified about the bill, testified about changes they want the bill. The changes that Blunt and I made were basically um, uh, from both sides on it. But they believe it's grounded in the Constitution, and that's because Article 2, Section 1, Clause 4 says uh, that Congress can set the day um, of choosing electors and the day for the electors to vote. Um, the Constitution itself, not just some bill, also directs us to count the votes, right? That was my role as chair of the Rules Committee. That's why I got to sign all the thing at the end that I have displayed in my office, by the way, from that night at 4 a.m. Um, of all of the states and what the outcomes were, and then we all have to sign it. Um, the 12th Amendment requires the vice president to open the electoral votes in the presence of the Senate and the House. Um, that's the limit of what it says. Um, and then I will also say, so that's how it's constitutionally grounded. Uh, but for especially my Republican colleagues who are concerned about preserving the role of the states, um, we don't do anything to change what the states are doing up to that point. 
uh, of course, making clear they have to choose their electors um, before the um, election so they know who they have in place. So I, I, that is, we preserve that piece of it, but uh, we make very clear that it's grounded in the Constitution. Now, the Freedom to Vote Act, which I also firmly believe is grounded in the Constitution, um, would be putting minimum standards in place, but allowing states to do more than that if they wanted, and in many areas allowing them to do what they wanted. And are you concerned that uh, what you're proposing past the presidential vote process uh, is constitutionally uh, justified, particularly with the Supreme Court that's, that now has oh, a six-vote yeah. six conservatives <laughs> who seem to be you know, not, not that tolerant for, yeah. for some of these voting I just rights. got to hang out with them at the investiture of Kentanji Brown-Jackson. They were all there at the reception afterwards. So uh, I, of course, I'm concerned about anything the Supreme Court uh, will, could do. Um, and there's reason, given what we've seen with uh, mounting decisions, including the Dobbs decision that I disagree with, where they were willing to reverse 50 years of precedent uh, on Roe v. Wade. Um, citing treatises back to the medieval era where they banned pointy shoes. Okay, I'm not, this is called a, this is called going off. I won't continue. Uh, however, one of the changes that we made, the original Senate bipartisan agreement required mandatory hearing from the Supreme Court. We just made it normal where they can decide if they'd take a case or not. And I guess what gives me faith in the judiciary on this um, is everything that happened when Donald Trump was making his false claims. Over 60 judges, or maybe 60 cases, I can't remember if it's in that realm, where judges, including a number of Trump-appointed judges, right, rebuked uh, the uh, Trump lawyers for the cases, sometimes in very caustic tones, um, about the case, the case that they were bringing that was a lie, that wasn't true, and stood with the democracy. And that happened in district courts and circuit courts across the country and the Supreme Court um, uh, even with its uh, composition, its current composition, because those people were all in place, right, um, decided not to hear many of those cases. So I, or if they had, I, I, don't, I don't know the whole track record on what they did on every case, but clearly the will of the people stood um, in those states like Arizona and Wisconsin and Georgia and Nevada. So um, I actually think that this process, which allows for a smart federal appeals, we put some time limits on it of getting it after the electors uh, get a uh, uh, vote between the election and when that's certified by the governor and the electors vote, you can do an appeal and it has to be within six days. There's a whole process that's set forth in the bill to just simply make it more orderly, um, which was one of the big problems. But essentially, uh, everyone involved knows we're, we're not gonna, um, we're not gonna take out the judicial branch of government from this. No one thought we should on the left or the right. So we just simply tried to put a process in place in the bill. Let me ask you about a very important case that's now been accepted by the Supreme Court. It comes out of North Carolina where the North Carolina legislature Republican control passed a gerrymander, uh, which I think is widely acknowledged to favor the Republican Party, the state Supreme Court in North Carolina uh, threw it out. And then the, the legislature has taken this uh, appeal under something known as the um, independent state legislature doctrine. The Supreme Court has now accepted this case. It's known as the Moore case. Um, and if the Supreme Court sides with the North Carolina legislature, it would have huge impact on redistricting because states could do what they want. It could have an impact on the Electoral College, including some of the, the work that you've been working on, Senator Klobuchar. What's your view about uh, this case and, um, and, and how it's gonna work its way out? Well, I'm obviously concerned about this. Uh, North Carolina um, has this history um, and their Democratic governor for a while didn't even have the margin and they still have a Democratic governor, it's very good. Uh, didn't have the margin to um, his vetoes would be overridden. And so you had one case that a uh, federal court said um, discriminated with surgical precision in terms of the law that they had passed. 
Um, I'm actually working on and heading up an amicus brief for this case. Stay tuned. I'm sure it'll be really exciting re reading uh, uh, with a number of mem members about uh, the problem with this, with the independent uh, legislature. We've also looked at, you know, should can we do a bill? It would not have been in this uh, Electoral Count Act, but that's something else uh, that we have are considering uh, right now. So I, I just uh, believe that uh, this is a major, major problem, and people are going to keep trying to find ways to circumspect and get, a circum and get around, circumscribe, and get around our democracy um, all the time. And that's what this is about. And the gerrymandering itself is so damaging when you look at the states. Minnesota is so unique in that we don't have gerrymandered districts. That's why we always seem to have one or two that are hotly contested, always in the top ten in the country in the last decade. Well, you know why. We actually have a, a process that allows for uh, fair districts, and that's not what's going on in the other states. And here's the kicker. In the Freedom to Vote Act, it actually sets up a, a commission and a process uh, for fixing this, and that's another reason we want to pass the Freedom to Vote Act. We're, we're running out of time, so I want to ask a couple last questions. Um, We've got several questions uh, from the audience about race. Um, some Republicans, including Senator Grassley, say that discrimination in voting, racial discrimination is a thing of the past. Um, how do you see race playing into you know, the issues around registration and voting? Uh, go back to my surgical precision quote. Uh, we know it is still going on. We know when we see... Um, uh, the gerrymandered districts, uh, what we just see uh, coming out of Alabama recently, uh, we know uh, that it's happening. And people are just trying to make it harder for people to vote. They're making it hard for um, people who are low income to vote. That's a whole problem. When I saw this, when I went down, I did a voting rights hearing in Georgia with Reverend Warnock and um, Senator Ossoff and a few other senators and just heard the stories of this veteran who had you know, signed up, served our country, um, and came back and was uh, set to vote and stood in a hotline for um, five hours. And he said when he signed up to serve, there was no waiting line. Uh, he was Hispanic. And when he comes home, there shouldn't be a waiting line in the United States of America. Well, we see time and time again these districts that are poorer uh, have less access to voting. I also heard stories uh, that you know they, they kept changing the polling places for all three elections, the primary, the general election, and the runoff. For one guy, we're in three separate locations. Um, that makes it really confusing for people. Um, and so that's why having drop-off boxes and all these things uh, would be really helpful. And I mean, we have seen the numbers of what's been happening um, in these areas and what these votes are targeted at. All of these voter suppression efforts um, are making it harder to vote, and uh, they're making it harder for uh, people of color to vote. Question from a local election official who's uh, watching. Is there a plan to diversify a pool of election workers across the country? Well, that's an interesting idea, and I will look at that. You know, we have the local officials get us the uh, election workers. I didn't really finish my thought on the election workers to begin with, and one of the answers there is... Funding, uh, we, uh, Roy and I, bipartisan basis, asked the Election Assistance Commission uh, to be able to allow the local election workers to use some of the federal money that comes to them in localities for security. Um, and because if you think it's hard for people in a big city, you think about being in a rural area where they have like three police officers or something and they can't protect them. Uh, we had the Kentucky Secretary of State, very red state, testify um, about how they were having trouble um, recruiting volunteers. So um, we're focusing on getting more money to these local election officials. We're focused on um, um, perhaps in the Freedom to Vote Act, we created a federal crime for going after local election officials. And then I will look at this, at this proposal as yeah, well. There, there's a recent survey found there about 82% of local election workers um, are white. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe there's a way to attach mm -hmm. some conditions. Last question, Walter Mondale. Um, you know, he, he fought hard for uh, civil rights legislation in the 1960s, faced a credibly acrimonious uh, country and, and Senate, um, and was able to get uh, progress, important progress, including fair housing, which he was 
uh, credited for. Um, are there lessons from that experience that Mondale had that you're drawing on in the work you're doing at the Senate? Uh, well, the first lesson is a kind of more global lesson for him and Humphrey. I remember showing um, our staff one year, there's a documentary on Humphrey that maybe some of the students here have seen. And at the very end, they have this scrolling uh, page of all the bills that he passed. And it was like hundreds of bills that went on. And then, and I remember I'm a brand new senator. I'm showing this thing. And I remember the lights went on. And everyone's like, <laughs> so both of them were incredibly effective uh, and working across the aisle and uh, getting things done. And I think that's a lesson I learned. Um, in terms of uh, Mondale, he actually took on a lot of hard causes. And I think we think of him as Fritz and uh, the person that uh, we loved and was always so Minnesota from, you know, fishing up north to being the son of a minister from a small town uh, in southern Minnesota. But he took on some really hard fights. Uh, you mentioned some of them. He took on uh, race fights. He took on fights about uh, helping people with child care, helping families, moms. Uh, with child care, he took on way ahead of his time on security mm -hmm. and uh, potential invasion of people's privacy uh, with security. I remember uh, when President Obama got in uh, at his late age, um, 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 this is after having served as ambassador to Japan, Fritz was still trying to get on, maybe you know this, on that surveillance committee <laughs> to monitor what was going on. I was unsuccessful in getting him on it. Um, but uh, the FISA oversight board, uh, how much he still cared about that. Um, and so uh, he was ahead of his time. And so that's what I think about when I think about him. And even when he ran for president, he was very honest with people about what he was going to do. So when I see these issues like this election one that just feels intractable, first of all, you make progress where you can, which he understood. That's like the Electoral Count Act, some of these other things I've done. Um, and then secondly, you just don't give up. I didn't give up on taking on the prescription drug uh, pricing with the pharma companies, and it took over a decade, uh, but we have now finally passed something uh, to take it on. Two fights I'm in right now, one's not as much a fight as much as no one wants to deal with it kind of thing. Um, uh, because and I, I, I said this at a hearing the other day to some of the um, when it came to tech, um, but I said, I keep feeling like, and I thought they were doing the same thing, taking on issues where the critics are so loud and the supporters are many, but so quiet. Um, and the Afghan refugees for me right now is that uh, we have 70, 80,000 people that are here um, and we need to figure out their status um, so that they can work. Um, uh, many, many of them are well-known and liked by our military. They stood by our side, and we did this with the Hmong to much success in Minnesota. Um, they are very integrated in our, in our state. Uh, they're leaders in our community, and we need to do the same thing here uh, in terms of getting them on the path to a green card and with, of course, vetting. And that's something I got Lindsey Graham on at 4 in the morning uh, because we were both voting. Um, Four in the morning, I got him on that bill in the middle of the voterama. Um, and so we are moving forward um, on that bill. President Bush is a big supporter. But that one is, you do feel sometimes, as I think of Mondale, these are acts of love because it is hard. Then the second one is taking on tech. As my husband said to our daughter a few months ago, uh, be nice to your mom this weekend. She's taking on the four biggest companies in the world, and she just got banned from Russia. Um, so... Um, I just think someone has to do these things, even if they're spending more money on ads. This is a true fact, guys. The tech companies are spending more money on ads uh, against my bill that just says they can't always put their stuff at the top, bipartisan bill, um, than they are than any other uh, company, even pharma, spent uh, on any issue. And uh, they spent more money as of last month than any Senate race except Georgia. So that is what I'm dealing with right now. So. When I think about the decency of Walter Mondale and uh, Humphrey and taking on those fights, I've got a little thing in my head that says, okay, he would have done it. He would have done it. So thanks That's for the That's a great question. way to end. Thank you so much, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Thank you.
We've got a few closing comments. I want to just, uh, again, thank okay. Senator Klobuchar. Uh, I want to start by uh, thanking uh, Bill and, and uh, Penny George and the George Foundation for making this program possible. Also, you heard Senator Klobuchar uh, talking about election administration. The Humphrey School has the most rigorous and comprehensive program on election administration in the country. Um, that's both terrific but also sobering. Um, if you'd like information about this program, Please, uh, you can get easy access to it. It's called the Certificate in Election Administration. It's pioneering, 12 credits, gives you a certificate. It's taught by the top people in the country, um, and it's, it's accessible online. So this is being taken all over the country, strong placement records, um, and you can easily apply. We've got two courses coming up uh, in the second half of the semester, beginning October 25th. And you can easily um, sign up for these classes. They're being taught by all-star people. Um, they're like some of the best people in election administration. One is on voter outreach and participation, which Senator Klobuchar was talking about. The other is on physical election security. It's being taught by the election group's Jennifer Morrell. In the elections world, Jennifer Morrell is like, you know, one of the biggest names. This is a terrific course. If you're interested in security, you can learn more about that. Also want to mention we've got some great upcoming programs um, in, in October. Um, next Wednesday, October 12th, noon, we've got a terrific program on control of Congress. It's with two of the best Democrat-Republican consultants in the country. They're amiable, smart, and incredibly connected. Uh, that's noon. That's online. October 17th, Mark Hugo Lopez, uh, who runs the um, Race and Ethnicity program at Pew uh, Research Center. We'll be here to talk about Latinx voters, one of the most important voting blocks uh, that'll be online. October 19th, Judd Choate, who runs elections in Colorado, is going to have Tova Wang in from Harvard to talk about uh, policy changes with regards to um, ballot rejection rates, which I guarantee is going to be a big issue um, in the November elections. November 2nd, very excited. Uh, uh, Krista Tibbet from On Being and I are collaborating on a visit by Amanda uh, Ripley, um, who's written a terrific book called uh, High Conflict. If you're wondering about how we keep getting into these battles where we hate each other, Amanda Ripley has really done amazing book on it and also tremendous insights into um, how to get out of it. And those of you who know Krista Tibbet will know this is going to be a very special event. We're excited to have Krista, this will be both live here and it'll be streamed online. That's uh, November 2nd at noon. If you're excited about today's program, you can get a copy of it. It'll be posted, podcasts, and uh, YouTube uh, within a day or two. And if you like these programs, please consider supporting them. Thanks to all of you who've uh, come. We appreciate seeing you. <laughs>